Welcome to the UK Consult Weekly Podcast with Jonathan Bradley and Elton Daddo, engagement practitioners and general consultation superheroes at Bang the Table in the UK. Hello and welcome to the UK Consult, our occasional ramble through all things about public consultation and citizen engagement in the UK with special guests and lovely examples of online consultations from around the world. And our special guest today is no other than internationally renowned public consultation expert and raconteur, co-founder of the Consultation Institute, author of two formidable tomes on public consultation consultation and a global expert on the law of consultation. I think everyone listening will know who we're talking about, no other than Rion Jones. My God, you make it sound terrible, John. <laughs> I'm sure I don't. It's all true, isn't it? Well, I'm not so sure about the global stuff. I think the highlights globally was going to the World Bank in 2012 and showing them how we teach uh, stakeholder mapping, which was actually a methodology that they themselves invented and made so complicated that nobody could, uh, else could understand it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that. How, when, how long ago was that now? Mm, about nine years ago, I think. Yeah. So um, with you coming on to, to, to do this podcast, it made me think about how long we've been working together. I was trying to go back in, back in history, it seems. What do you reckon? Well, I know, because uh, we talked about it yesterday and you said how long we worked together. John, the first email between you and I was in March 2004. Wow. When you were working for a firm called BMG in Birmingham, which I think is still going strong. Yes, uh, yes. Then the, then the Bostock brothers, one of them sadly lamented. And uh, we then worked together in Scotland in 2005. You then became uh, one of our regular trainers and on my calculations, you must have trained three or 400 times uh, for the Institute, which is why on one occasion, we decided to make you a fellow of the Institute. And you're, yeah. you're to this day, one of only five fellows. Uh, we remember you for your training very, very well. Hope you'll still turn up to do the odd one. Yeah, I'd love to do that, actually. That'll be fantastic. And uh, yeah, I'm very proud to be a fellow of the Institute. And not how those years have gone by so quickly. It's incredible, really. I mean, if, if I was to put you on the spot, what do you, what do you think's mostly changed since, since those early days, since the beginning in the world of public consultation? I think the biggest change, actually, is that in order to do a good job of consultation, you don't now start with the consultation itself. I think when you and I started working in the detail that we did, back in 2004, 2005, we actually thought of the 12-week period or however long it was and is as that being a chunk of work. I think now there is probably uh, 60% of the activity is beforehand and the pre-consultation has become, you know, the options development, uh, all the method planning, uh, the IT and everything. That has become a huge part of the process. And basically, if you screw up the pre-consultation, I don't give many hopes barring successful consultation. No, that's it, isn't it? And the Institute does a lot of training and support work around that pre-consultation aspect now, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, um, you know, Nick Duffin, who kind of developed a lot of the options development stuff, uh, I think Nick probably is overrun with demand for assistance at that stage. Uh, and it's a very, very important part of it, and one where lots of companies, I'm afraid, get ripped off by the bigger consultancies 
uh, who see a recipe for making rather a lot of money uh, on the back of it. It doesn't all need to be spent in the, in, in the volumes that some public bodies get lured into spending. Sure. And what, what about um, coming up to current times then? What's, um, what's, what's been going on in the last sort of few weeks and months and any sort of significant news or interesting observations that you could share? Well, I think the last three or four weeks in particular have seen a really step change in the level of activity. I mean, the Institute actually got through the difficult times of the various lockdowns last year tolerably well. But it's very clear now that a lot of projects that were postponed, a lot of initiatives that were on hold, suddenly becoming live again. So our membership, I think, have sort of upped the ante considerably in the last few weeks, judging by the number of contracts we've got, but also uh, increased membership, funnily enough. Not that we lost as many as we thought we would, but of course there are lots of public bodies where the people involved in engagement and consultation were really sidelined to do other things when the pandemic was at its worst. I mean, right now in the National Health Service, which is a major part of our consultation focus, in the NHS, a lot of the comms and engagement people are pretty well full-time working on the very excellent and successful inoculation programme. So the vaccination is really dominating everything, but they can't put off and will not put off some fairly major service reconfigurations that I think are going to come down the line in the wake of the pandemic. Sure, and you think that that requirement for public consultation is people won't be able to sideline it even if there's a temptation, I guess. Well, no, I mean, there are a couple of interesting things in the health service, like we've got a white paper that's been published, which is going to basically reorganise and try and get rid of the worst excesses of the Lansley reforms of nine, ten years ago. So we're waiting to see what's in the bill when it's uh, published in Parliament after the Queen's speech. I think by and large, they've got it right, except for one big howler. I think it's a major mistake to deprive health and overview scrutiny committees in England of their power of referral uh, when there's a reconfiguration they don't like, power of referral to the sector state, and they're going to abolish the independent re re reconfiguration panel, which I think is a very, very retrograde step. I'm not sure whether that will get through Parliament. We and others will lobby quite vigorously. That's a one of the checks and balances that they shouldn't uh, remove. So, you know, we're in for an interesting time in the health service. Yeah. And, and what about in local government? There seems to be a lot going on around um, streets and town centres and, and all of those sorts of things. Well, one of the things that's looming, something like about 250 councils in the United Kingdom now who have declared a climate emergency, and many of those had aspirations to do quite ambitious things uh, for climate change, but all of that, I can hardly think of a uh, local authority whose programme has survived, uh, you know, the terrible tragedy of the pandemic. And as I think these reemerge, get put back on the agendas, I think local government have got a terrible dilemma. They want to do a lot of things, they just haven't got the money to do it. Uh, and furthermore, uh, they will not get a lot of these things through without extensive public consultation and getting the public on side. Now, uh, we, we've seen in the last few months a classic case of how not to do it, because experimental traffic orders were allowed um, after the lockdown. You know, councils were encouraged, you know, given, even given money by the government to change some of the traffic flows in our larger towns and cities. And in some cases, 
on an emergency basis, they're allowed to put it in first and consult afterwards. Absolutely disastrous. And it's pitted communities against communities. We have London boroughs where there is very acrimonious disagreements between people in one street and another, according to which way the traffic has been routed. So those are bad mistakes. You've got to consult people. You've got to carry people uh, with you. And, and some of these are really, really tough issues. Yeah, and um, it's interesting that on our on Engagement HQ, we've had more and more projects recently, almost um, realising that more needs to be done to engage people in. You know. okay. Can I give you one example, John, on uh, talking about local governments, talking about uh, climate change? Um, there's something called air quality zones that have been around for a long time. I read somewhere that there's 250 or so of these in Europe, and we've only got a handful um, three or four uh, in Britain. London has got one. I think Bath and North East Somerset have just launched one. There's one in Birmingham. But an authoritative uh, report on this that came out this last week, I reached for it, it's called the, the Case for Clean Air Zones. They say one of the main reasons why they haven't happened in the UK is because of inadequate consultation. In other words, um, if you consult the public, you're finding the public is against them. Why are public against them? Well, hardly surprising, because you're actually obliging people to drive less, to trade up their old vehicles. You're hurting poorest people most. And for most of these disadvantages, there are ameliorating measures that councils can take. So what a consultation does, a bit like when you're trying to close accident emergency, the NHS has now learnt you don't actually take a proposal like that to consultation unless you've worked very hard on mitigating uh, measures. And councils need the money, the space, the time, the ingenuity in order to prepare uh, proposals that actually help people overcome the disadvantages on what is, by common consent, a sensible policy. So these clean air zones, which I hope now will become rather more uh, visible, um, these clean air zones cannot proceed unless you have decent consultation run by local authorities with a decent budget and with the wherewithal to capture people's hearts and minds and their support. Yeah, because it's... It... Those mitigate the, the the mitigation comes through is a product of the consultation. Is, is that the case? I, I would expect to see a council knowing that it's going to be disadvantaging, you know, there are winners and losers with lots of proposals like this. I would expect the council to work very hard using co-production and other participatory techniques to come up with a range of ideas of how the worst impacts of proposals can be dealt with, and then go to consultation to see which ones of those command public support and which ones of them may not command public support. You know, some of these scrappage schemes that you need to do in order to get the most polluting vehicles off our streets, you know, need a lot of financial support from the treasury and elsewhere. And for as long as uh, central government says to local government area, do, do what you do, but fund it yourselves, you know, it's going to mitigate against successful implementation of sensible ideas for climate change. Yeah, and, and the trick with that as well, be is going to be going back to, you know, the old gem that this isn't a referendum. It's not a vote. This is a, a, a you know, a public consultation and some things will proceed that are unpopular, but at least, you know, but we know why they're unpopular and we'll try and do something about it. 
Well, we, we, we've always said, and you used to teach as effectively as anybody, John, um, that whilst you do need to bear the quantitative uh, output of a consultation in mind, uh, the real gold, the real value of asking a lot of people is to understand the arguments, uh, not only to understand what the arguments are, but to understand why people express those arguments. We used to say that uh, amongst the things that you're looking for in consultation is insight. Insight is why people think what they think, not just uh, understanding what they're saying to you. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's what really drives a lot of what I'm trying to do um, around, you know, doing more than just a, a survey when it comes to online consultation. Well, John, it's one of the reasons why um, I think you've written yourself that good digital engagement is not just an online survey. An online survey has to be very skillfully drawn up if you're going to get the insight into why people are saying what they're saying. You may be able to discern what they think, uh, but you don't get to the heart of why they think what they are, which is why you need the whole range of modern digital engagement techniques and not just a survey. Yeah, I always remember, you know, we used to talk a lot on making consultation meaningful about the right people, the right time, the right questions and the right methods. And I think that right methods play uh, piece is what's being played out in terms of online participation now. I think more and more people are actually tuning into designing a consultation online that does have a variety of dialogue methods, which we've always said was, you know, always the first sign of good practice was that someone was using uh, more than one methodology. In, uh, when they were when they were delivered when they were doing their consultation which has become more difficult um since the pandemic i mean you know losing all the face-to-face -face stuff um and replacing it with digital does carry a downside now i, I, I we were talking to the welsh land of my fathers the other day and i believe it was representatives from one of the health boards in north wales saying do you know what since we've moved to digital engagement we ourselves get consulted by the government in cardiff rather more than we used to do before we used to have to go down to a meeting in cardiff wait for the occasional meeting to be held in Llandidno before we could actually have a seat around the table and we can now zoom in if that's the pun we can zoom in <laughs> discussions um because geography has become rather less important uh, and that must apply all over the country probably applies in a single in a, in a single county you know I'm, I'm at one end of central bedfordshire and the meeting being held 20 25 miles away is something i'm loath to go to whereas if it was in biggleswood where the institute is we might well have been able to join so you know eliminating the barriers of geography you know has huge advantages it's got disadvantages as well but these are things that we've learned in the course of the last 12 months we knew them before but the acceleration of existing trends like digital engagement has been really very, very obvious to anybody working in consultation in, in the last months. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, how else do you think COVID pandemic has changed public consultation? Well, I've got a theory, but I'm not sure it's proven yet, John. Um, I've got a theory that <laughs> it's going to radically change people's trust in government. It's not that they don't trust government, but they've suddenly realized that if you're apathetic to what governments do, and we can talk about local government as well as central governments, um, it is amazing how much power they have over our lives. I mean, a lot of people who've taken scant interest in government decisions have been affected in their personal 
lives in their in their own business in a way that nobody would ever have imagined you know two short years ago and i think it's going to change the expectation for consultation i think people's willingness to give uh, people the benefit of the doubt when it's not a you know hour by hour emergency as a pandemic has been i think we've gone forever i think there will be a much greater uh, willingness to participate in decision making and a greater desire therefore for some form or another of consultation not sure if this is true but that's where i think is going to be the lasting legacy people will not just trust to government that their lives can't be impacted rather more than they thought yes that whole trust piece will be really fascinating to see how that that, that plays out and lots of people have gone online because they had to and um, some of that will will stick around but we, you know we're, we're hearing the term a lot blended consultation so it'll be interesting to see what you think that means what what do you know in terms of let, let me comment a bit about online because um we, we've invented a new term actually in the same way as we take credit for having introduced the term seldom heard instead of the terrible term hard to reach not sure the seldom heard is is all that perfect either but um, we've now introduced a term john called seldom online uh, and the theory is, is is very simple there are a whole group of people who are always online so you don't have to worry about being able to reach them uh, using new technology and the internet there are equally uh, and sadly a small group of people who are never online for reasons that uh, may be cultural or age-related or, or what have you but we think there's in the middle an area group of people whom I would call seldom online. What I mean by that is they're capable of going online. They would rank in any survey as being on the internet, but they do not go instinctively online and they most certainly are not comfortable uh, going online to express their views to a public body uh, were they to be asked. So the trick I think given that you've got the always online in the bag as being willing to participate in theory, I think the trick now is to find ways of encouraging, inducing and supporting um, people who have who need to overcome a certain reluctance or hesitation to actually be more confident using online to express their views. Let me give you just one, one, one example at the moment that's bothering me quite a lot, and that is a lot of public bodies um, will prefer to use Microsoft Teams uh, to using Zoom. And as people are going more and more for public meetings or semi-public meetings or focus groups, uh, as they're going to do them online, you can't go to the member of the public and say, you've got to join us on Microsoft Teams, because Microsoft Teams is far less user-friendly and is far more intimidating to people uh, than the, uh, in my view, superior user interface of Zoom. Now, you know, these are some interesting challenges because nobody's going to underestimate the power of Microsoft to influence uh, its own market. Um, but that's just a small example of what are you going to do to get the seldom online more comfortable with the experience? I, I find that really fascinating because there's also the um, uh, digital poverty. So I've you know, been reading a lot about the choice over um, you know, your broadband or feeding your children because of the cost of data and things like that. So as we move, as, as, as inevitably as we do more online public consultation and as the blend switches to face-to-face -face not necessarily being the default anymore, um, we do have to really consider a lot, a lot of things like the seldom online and, and the people that can't afford huge amounts of data and, and how do they participate. 
in Engagement HQ, you are yet seeing the shift that is being predicted towards um, using um, iPhones and smartphones as the method of data entry or data collection. Yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seeing that for sure. And um, I talk about consultation on your couch because you can get involved wherever uh, and whenever ever you like. So that ability to pop in and out of a public debate and leave your comment um, drop a pin on a map, whatever it is you're choosing to do, and and, and do it um, in your own time. So that asynchronous approach, because um, we've talked, haven't we, about online public meetings and what a, what a disaster I think they potentially can be. But you've also experienced the positive side of, of those online public meetings as well. I, I, I took part in one a few weeks ago, um, with, which was run by our local parish council, which I'm glad to say is somewhat better than the one that hit the news a few weeks ago. And the local parish council really wanted to ascertain the village, village's views uh, on a planning proposal. Now, these always excite a fair amount of uh, local interest, but the actual turnout for that meeting on, on a Zoom call uh, absolutely astonished me. I think something like 25, 30% of the entire population was on a single Zoom call. Now, that would have been inconceivable, in my view, um, before the pandemic and the, uh, I think, the reluctant absorption of this technology by, you know, little parish councils, which previously, you know, worked rather like the, the Vicar of Dibley example. So, yeah. so there are some positive sides, certainly getting yeah. more people involved in things like planning. Yeah, I think so. And um, one of the things that it's forced me to look into is that the proportion of people that have a fear of speaking up in face to face meetings. And it's called it's called glossophobia. And it's something like 70 percent, I think, of people have a fear of actually speaking up in a face to face meeting. So as well as the seldom online, there's the there's the, the vast majority proportion of people who just wouldn't actually speak up in a face to face situation. So it's really interesting area of, of work. So. One of the things I'd like to do now, just change, change your tack a little bit, would be for you to look forward and think about some of the biggest challenges facing public consultation in the, in the UK over the next few years. I think it's more challenge facing politics as a whole, in a way. I mean, if you reflect upon what's happening in the world, the world has, in the last 10, 15 years, maybe, maybe even longer, uh, been moving in the direction of more ideologically based decision-making. I, I know some of the academics claim there's no such thing as evidence-based policy-making. I actually disagree with them. I think there's evidence-influenced based uh, policy-making, if not evidence-based. But, you know, th th this idea that you're making decisions according to um, people's gut feelings, the culture wars, so forth. You know, I mean, I believe in listening to people's views, but I also believe in actually considering those views uh, in, in the wider context. You know, I believe in this stuff. Ask yourself, do you know of any person you respect who will go around saying, do you know, the best decisions I take are the ones where... I don't have to listen to anybody, but I don't have to take advice. Well, apart from Donald Trump, maybe. If you read the books about Donald Trump, he's, he's the archetypal decision maker that does not want advice from anywhere. Now, obviously, in real life, if you're a top manager, if you're a top director of a public service, you know, you're not going to take important decisions without garnering together all the best advice you can. And consultation is, to my mind, one of the strongest bastions of evidence 
based policymaking. If you've got to run a consultation, somebody somewhere has got to set out exactly what you propose, not what some people propose and other people might propose, but not quite sure what the proposal actually is. You've got to lay down what you propose. You've got to set out your arguments for it. In the ideal world, you should be setting out the arguments both for and against, and then finding out what people think of the likely impacts of those decisions. So the big challenge for the future, I think, is to help make consultation one of the strongest bastions for good decision-making in public affairs. It's um, something that I also massively believe in. And um, you reminded me of something that I meant to mention to you when we, when we, got, when we got together one day, was um, I read a book, um, and it's been a while, around for a while, called Rebel Ideas. And it talks about the danger of um, people te people's tendency to associate and bond with similar similar other peoples, and, they, and that's called homophily. And um, and it talks about the the massive value in diversity of opinion. And I'd never and and, and this was a, a management book about building teams and, and, and more, lots more to it than that. But um, and it just made me think about the, you know, similar to what you said, the value of public consultation in gathering diverse views and opinions so that decisions aren't made by what we used to call on our training courses, memories to talk about groupthink. Well, it is groupthink. I mean, four or five years ago, do you remember when we had the big conference that we held in the Emirates Stadium, the guest speaker was Michael Portillo. We actually had Portillo actually admitting that the big flaw and the mistake that cost Margaret Thatcher ultimately, in many people's minds, her job over the poll tax was the fact that alone it was not consulted upon. It was all generated from inside. There was a group of people, William Waldegrave led them, whose groupthink had made assumptions which turned out to be totally false about what people regarded as fair and wasn't fair. So there's a lot of evidence that an absence of consultation is one of the main causes of things going badly wrong. It's not the only cause. The challenge for the future, I think, is... And, and, and the other thing, uh, I think the world is speeding up, John, isn't it? I mean, you know, uh, you, you and I spent many of the first few years of the Institute trying to persuade people why it's worth spending 12 weeks having a decent consultation. Well, you know, in the... Yeah. Uh, in the pandemic, you know, to be fair to governments, nobody had 12 weeks to spare to take certain decisions. Um, and I got into a lot of trouble with some of my own colleagues when I suggested, look, even a two-week consultation done online and in the right way is better than no consultation at all. And in fact, the uh, consultation that's uh, just completed now on vaccine passports I think they call it something else, uh, status certification or something. The vaccine, that was only two weeks. Now, um, yes, you can criticize it, but I'd sooner have a two-week consultation than no week, no consultation. So I think um, one of the challenges now is to fit the consultation methodologies that we do into the rapidly accelerating decision-making and decision cycle, which is where uh, products like yourselves uh, in Bangle Table, you know, you have an important role to play because you can't do things quicker without uh, harnessing the digital aspect of it. And the question then arises is how do you handle uh, those whose ability to use those, to respond to those techniques uh, are uh, in some way circumscribed.
Yeah, and that, and that that leads on to my next question, really, which um, will um, will be interesting for my colleagues as, as well as the people tuning in. But what are the what are the biggest challenges facing online public consultation? As you know, if you look in your crystal ball, well, I think you've got to teach people in the public sector how to use your technology because it's all very well making it available. Uh, remember, I used to work for in the computer industry many years. I used to work for a company called ICL, which has become Fujitsu, and 30, 40 years ago when I was there, the big, the, the big problem we had then was that there's a huge amount of functionality in most software products that people don't learn how to use. And my guess is that the world hasn't changed very much now. And I, I think you've got to train people to use the technology that's available. It's very tempting to use the easy stuff, whereas sometimes the stuff that isn't as easy to actually use uh, can actually confirm more benefits and deliver more value. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and training um, and training participants as well, like like you said, like the seldom online and other people, making sure that they understand how to use the, the tech in the most effective way. What may help you, um, John, is there are two big new initiatives that the institute um, is preparing, and I will kind of pre-announce them for the benefit of your uh, listeners just now. We are producing uh, what I hope will be the mother and father of a database of consultations. Um, I mean, it's amazing when you think about it, there are tens of thousands of public consultations every year in the UK, but you actually can't find out very much about them. Um, for once, and perhaps only, only once, I agree with Dominic Cummings that governments are very poor at using big data approaches. There's all this information about, you know, what consultation was run about what subject and how many people responded to it and what did they say and how long did it last and how much did it cost. None of this data is freely available. Um, your own system will hold a lot of information about the consultations conducted by your clients. It's very difficult to read across to uh, other organizations who maybe use different systems and so forth. So we are going to launch something called MyDesk at the end of May and uh, Institute members will be able to use that as a business intelligence tool. It's not a platform, it's just to find out, you know, if somebody says, well, has anybody else run a consultation like this? And when they did so, I mean, how many pages was the, uh, was the consultation paper? How many questions did they have and who answered it and so forth? So that's a business intelligence tool. And the other uh, initiative we have is that we're going to be announcing an online dispute resolution uh, service. So people who uh, disagree with the way that the local council is running consultation can actually come to us, check it out to see if the consultation uh, is, is good enough and maybe use our services for mediation or arbitration. Now that is absolutely world unique. Nobody's done it yet. We'll be the first. Yeah, I think there are certainly two things that people will really be uh, look forward to finding uh, more about. And if you want to include any information when we put this on, on our site and publish it, then we're happy to, to put some links in there. And, and um, the smart thing would be to integrate access to those services uh, into products like Engagement HQ so that uh, you know people can, can, can find these resources fairly easily. Sure. So I'm just going to take a bit of a break for a second from our questions and for the benefit of people tuning in we always do a couple of shout outs to recent um, projects and sites that have launched um, on uh, on engagement hq so the, the the two i've picked today the first one is future rutland it's called and um, they recently um, launched their engagement hq site they're a new client 
what I really like about, apart from the conversations itself, is um, the fact that Rutland, there's something special about Rutland, isn't there, Rion? Well, no long as it, does it, does it still exist as a county or is it a district? Oh, I can't remember that, but it's still, yeah, it's still the smallest though, isn't it? Smallest county council. So they're, what they're doing on their site, they're just starting out. So they're having a conversation about people value most about their life in Rutland. So they're, they're having online discussions and what have you about that. And then they've got, they've done another version for children and young people. So the, the future of Rutland conversation for them as well. So be interesting to see how that pans out. And we'll put the link to that in our, in the blurb, as we call it, with the podcast. And the second one, Rion, is one that we've already picked up on. And it's the attempt to have better conversations about our high streets. So Bournemouth, um, Christchurch and Paul Council, BCP Council, um, have a project about reimagining their high streets and they're inviting people to um, drop a pin on a, on a, on a map to talk about uh, improvements to their high street. So that's a really dynamic, interactive map. And they've also got an ideas board. So it's that sort of curious phase of the of more or less pre-consultation engagement, you'd probably say, where they're actually getting people's ideas and opinions for changes to the high street, which is good to see where you are with a lot of the bad practice that we've um, sort of already highlighted. So the last question almost, Rion, is if you could have a magic wand, what one thing would you fix about public consultation in the UK? So I'm putting you on the spot here. That's a really difficult one. If there's one thing, I guess it's to teach the politicians and elected members, particularly in local councils, to teach them a little bit more about consultation. I mean, when we wrote uh, the book, The Politics of Consultation, what we realized is that technically we've solved many, if not all, of the problems of how a consultation works. But I'm afraid that political decision makers are subject to enormous pressures from the media and from elsewhere that very often makes them ask officials and civil servants sometimes to do the wrong things. So I'd love us to have much more influence to help them learn how to use consultation well in their own interests rather than use it badly. Fantastic. Um, and what a, what a great ending. But it wouldn't be the ending of this podcast without, without us sharing a joke each week. This is how we know that people have listened to the end, you see, because we can ask them if they heard the joke. Well, you, you go first, John, and I'll see if I can do anything as good. Okay, then. I was happily watching the Bermuda Philharmonic Orchestra when the guy on the triangle disappeared. <laughs> well, that, that, that joke's got the advantage of brevity, if, if, if not of great insight. John, can I give you one from my days in the IT industry? And, and knowing, of course... Uh, that Bang the Table is fundamentally a technology firm that's harnessed very important uh, computing skills, reminds me of the, uh, the story we used to tell, uh, the story goes of uh, a computer engineer and a systems analyst and a programmer who are careering downhill in this car and suddenly the brakes failed and they somehow managed to bring it to a halt at the bottom of the hill in one piece. And as they collected each other, themselves from the accident, the computer engineer scratched in and said, you know, I think I can fix that. 
The systems analyst says, no, 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 I've got a better idea. I can write a really comprehensive report about this and submit it to somebody who will then give us a quote for fixing it. And the computer programmer says, no, do you know what I feel like doing? Let's push the car up to the top of the hill again and see if it does it again in the same way. And if you appreciate computer programmers as I do, you realize that there's more than a grain of truth in that apocryphal story, which I'm sure has never tried to bang the table. No, but I look forward to sharing that with our, with our develop, developers and engineering team. I'm sure they'll like that. Well, Rion, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, as they say. Um, I know that our thousands of visitors will, will value your thoughts and insight so much. So thank you very much. And, and uh, until next time. Thank you for tuning in to the UK Consult. Join us for future conversations each week as we continue to explore the tremendous, meaningful and ever-evolving world of digital consultation and community engagement. You can view additional educational resources at bangthetable.com.